Hello and welcome to another episode of the Clockwork Radio podcast. In today's episode, we'll be telling the story of Euro 2012 and specifically how the Dutch did there. Yep, that'll be a ride. And we'll also be taking a look ahead to what's now known as Euro 2021. Yeah, still sounds a bit weird to me. As always, I'm your host, Finn Kroboda, the guy behind Clockwork Aranya. And joining me for today's episode is uh, Dutch football journalist Peter McVitty. So, Peter, thanks very much for coming on the episode. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So, we'll just get the, the, the obvious question out of the way first, as I'm sure all the listeners will be able to tell from your surname and your accent. You are, of course, Scottish. Uh, and they'll all be wondering, so I'll just ask it, get it out of the way now. Why is uh, why has a Scott become, you know, an expert on Dutch football? Why has it become such a big part of your life? Well, partly for when I was when I was growing up, uh, Scottish football was, as it still is, just pretty terrible. So I didn't really have much of a choice when it came to real entertainment. Uh, the best players that I liked growing up were uh, Dutch players. I mean, Dennis Bergkamp was my absolute hero. And so the 1998 World Cup was just a big... Uh, moment for me because <clears throat> that goal against Argentina really uh, I was fascinated with the team watching them throughout the tournament um, and then I saw that game and that pass from uh, De Boer to Bergkamp for, for his just stunning goal just blew my mind and that was that was kind of one that I was like hey I, I like these guys so just over the next few years um, I, like, I just followed those players and it was really to do with individual players more than anything, but as time went on, I became much more fascinated with Dutch football, learned about Ajax and the the famous playing style and Johan Cruyff and stuff. Um, and it just fascinated me, really, and I, I just kept on with it. So I always wanted to write about football. Um, I started writing about European football, first of all, and then, uh, but one of those was Dutch football when I was at university. And from then, I got the chance to write for uh, football websites, and they liked the fact that I talked about Dutch football, and no one, no one else really did. So uh, I got more chances to focus on it, and I just went with it, and eventually moved out over here to to go with it. Really? Do you obviously you do it uh, from from like a professional capacity? Do you find you do you kind of support the national team as well? I'm more neutral when it comes to the club stuff, but with the national team, it's kind of easy for me because obviously Scotland are just so bad. Like the 1998 World Cup is the only tournament I've seen Scotland in. So it's not as if I really have much of a conflict of interest or anything. It's, um, so the national team is the one that I tend to like want to do well. When it Just growing up, really, it was the case that if Scotland weren't in it, I would just support the, the national team. And that's kind of way that's I was just stuck with that. I mean, I think... At national level, it is a bit different from club level for journalists. You have to have a bit more of a freedom to be biased. But the good thing is that, I mean, the Netherlands are often just pretty terrible. So you can really go hard at them justifiably and you'll really come across as being a biased fan or anything. <laughs> uh, I'm born, born and raised in England, but I have Dutch family. So growing up in England, I still supported Holland and I thought, in terms of success as well, it was a pretty good choice up until yeah. kind of post-2014. And then I thought, God, this is rough. Yeah, you're like, what have I signed up to? This is, this is horrible. Uh, am I right in thinking that Euro 2012, was that kind of the first tournament you um, covered the Dutch team from a kind of professional basis? Yeah, yeah, it was the first one that I really wrote about a lot. I mean, I think I did some stuff for 2010, but... Then I was just uh, in like my, I think I was in my first year of university, so I wasn't really doing anything professionally. But 2012 was was a big one for me because I was writing a lot. I was doing uh, podcasts and talking about it. And um, yeah, it was just, a, it was, I was really excited about it as well. I was really confident about the Dutch team. Like I, I went into that tournament like not having like a belief that the Dutch would win it, but it was as if I knew they would win it. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> Which really quickly obviously fell apart, but um, it was the first one that I, I was uh, delving into as a, as a journalist of, of sorts. Let, let's get into it. Um, yeah, like you mentioned, let's just start with the kind of pre-tournament expectations, because it was pretty much, if anything, the squad was slightly better than 2010. You know, you had Van der Vaart and Huntelaar much better form. And yeah, I was in the same boat. I remember telling all 
my you know England supporting friends at school like no we're gonna win it like have you seen our squad the group stage draw was obviously not ideal getting Germany and Portugal along with Denmark but um yeah even after that would you the expectations for the Dutch were still I mean sky high really with that squad weren't they yeah I, I still was really confident that they would make it out of that group I thought and Portugal Germany and Denmark Denmark were better than and people really gave them credit for. I mean, they were good building up to the tournament. Um, but yeah, I've I've felt really confident because I mean, the, yeah, as you say, the squad you've got like Huntelaar, Van Persie, Robin Schneider, Van der Vaart, but they're not. They're all at a really good age at that point. They're all like 27, 28, and 29. And it's like just when you're expecting a lot from them. You've had Huntelaar was the top scorer in qualifying that time, wasn't he? Yeah, um, yeah. It was like 13 goals. And Van Persie was red hot that season for Arsenal. So, yeah, it was like mostly because of the attacking players. I mean, you'd seen how what a, an amazing start they had in the previous European Championship. Obviously, they had uh, 2010 as well. But you just had this feeling that they were more experienced and, and really at their, kind of at their peak and that it would be the perfect time for them to click. The weakest part was obviously the defence. When you looked at the squad, I mean, the centre-backs were kind of shaky, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, Eric Peters was obviously injured, so you had 18-year-old Yetro Willems there at left-back who looked really bright for PSV, but um, was inexperienced. And you, I mean, obviously it was, it was obvious from the Denmark game, really, but he... Didn't, he, he didn't just... He wasn't ready for it, really, at all. So... Uh, there was a lot of reason to be confident, and you, I did think that the the strengths of the team sort of compensated for those those weaknesses, especially when you had such experienced midfielders like um, De Jong and Van Bommel. Do you think kind of having a better squad than 2010, really? You know, you had this time Huntelaar and Van der Vaart especially were in that kind of form where if Van Marwijk left him out, he'd get a lot of criticism. Uh, they'd be, well, yeah, obviously they weren't particularly happy about it. Do you think... Kind of their their rise from between 2010 and 2012 put him in a bit more of a difficult position. Yeah, and I think that played out in the tournament as well because you after the the game against Portugal, uh, there were a lot of talk from the players that hinted that there were divisions and stuff and some unhappiness, and it just seemed impossible for him to be able to satisfy uh, everybody in the squad and. It was one of those that had these like arrogant characters in it, so it was a delicate uh, balance for them. But you also have that there was so much expectation. I mean, we weren't the only ones who were were so confident. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of Dutch people, were totally sold on it as well. So it was basically anything other than winning it was going to, was going to be a failure for them. And yeah, I remember like. <sighs> just licking my lips at the thought of getting revenge on Spain for 2012, yeah. which obviously, yeah, that went well. Um, uh, well. Yeah, obviously we briefly mentioned they got a pretty pretty rough group stage draw, but they had the benefit of obviously opening against Denmark, uh, the team they opened against in 2010 as well. And yeah. again, you know, it was kind of like, well, it's an easy first game. We'll get a win from that. And then the big ones are the next two. And then, yeah, so that Denmark game, obviously, so Van Marwijk, Ma- Ma- he-, he played it safe. He went for De Jong, Van Bommel, no Van der Vaart, um, benched Huntelaar. Yeah, as you said, Yetro Willem started at left back. And, yeah, they lost 1-0. I-, I-, I watched the highlights back, and in a lot of ways, you could argue that this side, they actually played better than they did in 2010, in a lot of ways. But they just couldn't couldn't get that goal, could they? Yeah, uh, I think the the first half, as you said, Van Bommel and De Jong in the in the centre midfield, I thought that was a really pointless decision to make. I mean, you had Denmark who were just going to sit back quite deep for a lot of the time, uh, and they did. Um, the Netherlands had so many shots; it's like twenty five or thirty shots in the game, and I think there was only eight on target or six, maybe. It was so easy for Denmark to just uh, reduce them to a walking pace. There was, you could really tell that um, Robin didn't seem fit and he had a really rough season with Bayern. They had those injuries. Uh, then they lost the Champions League final to Chelsea and he seemed to be going into it with, in that Denmark game in particular, there was this kind of 
lack of conviction to to a lot of the things that Robin did. His shots were kind of tame. His dribbles were were weren't as as rapid as usual, and and he was really slow on the ball. And they then found it kind of easy to to limit Van Persie, who had to move around a lot and leave a big open space in front of the defenders, which made it easy for for Denmark to to to, to defend against. And then they gave away a, a lot of control in the middle of the park because they, they had those two holding midfielders and, and they just refused to, to step into the space. And there was just this big, big gap between them and, and Schneider, Robin and, and Afalai. And Afalai was a problem as well. He as well wasn't fit. He had just come back from basically a, a missed almost the full season at Barcelona, played a few games at the end of the season, played a couple of friendlies heading into the competition. But... Just didn't seem to settle in with the players around them because well he wasn't used to playing with them really, so it was a whole collection of of problems for them. And the other hand was that Denmark were actually pretty good. I mean Morten Olsen, I remember he spent a lot of time in his press conference before the game talking about how Denmark were the underdogs, Netherlands were the big favourites. He was jealous of the Netherlands. Just basically every cliche that managers come out usually come out with when they're up against bigger teams they fit fit them all into just a, a few minutes of talking but yeah they were i mean crondelli's finish was lovely they did so well to to pick out spa- dangerous spaces against you know you had heitinger and ron vlaar in the center of the fence just looking really slow and unable to 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 track anybody at the the dangerous moments particularly the goal so denmark were a good team at that point, but the Netherlands did really make it easy for them. It was painful to see that that was a that wasn't like they were unlucky or anything. That was just a bad performance. I felt even though they were kind of dominant and taking shots. The one big memory that comes comes to mind when I think about watching the game was probably Robin and Van Persie. Cause I, I thought Schneider was and same throughout the whole tournament. I don't think he was. A problem, which is weird because his club form had completely dropped off since 2010, really. Yeah. I think, but if you look at Robin, I remember this one moment, and he he was pretty much one on one with the Danish keeper, and he decided to try and square it. Which anyone who yeah. knows Iron Robin will know that's the least Iron Robin thing to do in the world. Yeah. <laughs> um. Uh, yeah, like you said, he, he had a pretty terrible club season. He'd missed that penalty for Bayern Munich, and uh, I think I seem to remember someone coming out in the press that a Dutch player had told. A journalist that a few in the camp were happy that Robin had missed the penalty because they thought he might bring him back down to earth a bit. How what how worried were you for the for the side after this loss? You know, losing this, looking like there's a lot of issues, and then Germany and Portugal next up. Yeah, despite despite all the red flags, uh, I think this kind of suggests how naive I was at the time. I still did have a feeling that they might be able to bounce back because there are some teams in at the start of competitions who just have a terrible first game. Um, just to I don't know why, but it, it does kind of happen that the first round is often just kind of dodgy. Teams are still trying to figure things out, uh, and I thought that the first of all I thought it would rattle them so that they would actually wake up a bit and go into the game against Germany, which is obviously huge, um, with a, a bit more of a, a bit more urgency to them and a bit more unity. Yeah, I was st- I still had some sort of preposterous belief, faith. It must just faith really that yeah. they, they would they would improve a bit. Yeah, I was the same. I, I had that kind of belief of one you know, in a way I was kinda I'd somehow it fooled myself into thinking that it was good that we were playing Germany next because you know if any any game's gonna get get the Dutch up for it it'd be that um, yeah you know I was like you know it will be up for it we know we need a win but I, mean, I also expected Van Van Marvik to to figure the to change things around I mean I thought that he would I mean the Germany game seemed like more of a reasonable one to play with Van Bommel and De Jong than than Denmark than the Denmark game did but. I thought he would, um, I mean, he had like Kevin Stropman there, he had Van der Vaart there as well. I thought he would change things to to fill that big, massive space that was in the middle of the park. And in this Germany game, that was the one where that was just exposed so unbearably. I mean, it was just there for, for both goals uh, that Germany scored. But 
I just couldn't believe how easy it was for Germany to to have control of the midfield and and just have it for the whole game. It was just startling. But so I I expected more from from Van Marwijk and and figuring things out a bit. But I guess I was just naive again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Germany they had um I think they had Schweinsteiger and Kadira is uh, yeah. the two holding midfielders. Or Zola midfield. Yeah, yeah, and it was just, I remember, because obviously the talk was all about Van der Vaart, but yeah, I, I was kind of an advocate for Kevin Stroman, I thought he was the happy medium between... Yeah, I thought it was a crime that he didn't play, I, I still, yeah. it still confuses me, I mean, not he didn't get a minute in this tournament, and he was 22 years old, it wasn't like he was he was an, an experienced, you know, teenager like Williams, I mean, he had some, he had some experience yeah he was he was a, he was a solid choice uh he deserved to be there and it still confuses me to be honest with you <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's i mean i'm a fan like i was a fan and still am of nigel de Jong, you know i think he got a pretty yeah. harsh reputation after 2010 really i did think he was a, a pretty good player but i think mark van bommel at that point he was he was aging and he just I mean he'd lost a lot of a lot of pace a lot of ability since the World Cup I think really um yeah certainly. yeah he was a bit of a he was a bit of a hazard especially because he already he, like his whole career he had that tendency to just get booked be booked in every game so you kind of worried about him from a discipline point of view as well that's the thing isn't it like if you look back at 2010 or De Jong's the one that's generally remembered as being the really dirty one. But if you go through the whole tournament, I think Van Bommel probably should have got about 10 more yellow cards than he actually did. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, I think he was always a bit of a liability, like you said. And then there was another always one. Always up for the old ultraviolence, to <laughs> the name of the show. So going into the Germany game, the other selection I thought, which isn't really that mentioned often, was um, Dirk Kaut, obviously, had been dropped for Afalai in the change of 2010. Which yeah. I was, like you said, Afalai was pretty unfit, hadn't played much. And also, Yetro Willems was behind him. And I, I mean, Dirk Kaut, one of the best things that is, is, you know, getting back and doing defensive work. So, I mean, that just seemed a no-brainer to me as well, sticking him in for a game against Germany to kind of help out Willems. But, yeah, uh, but he, yeah. He, like, he didn't come out. He played for, like, the last, just the last few minutes, didn't he? Um, yeah. It was amazing how late he left it to, to make some big changes like that. I mean, Dirk Kite was just so underappreciated in the Netherlands national team until Van Gaal came along. It's criminal. <laughs> it is. I think he's probably uh, maybe the favourite Dutch player. I used to love Ruud van Nistelrooy, but Dirk Kite as well is so underrated, I think. Um, but yeah, so this game, obviously, Germany won 2-1. Like I said, big issue was them just run, running the midfield, really. Uh, you had Philip Lahm just pocketed Iron Robin with ease. Obviously, it got it back to 2-1. Huntelaar and Van der Vaart came on. Do you think there were many positive signs to take from it, from the game? I, I really, I don't remember any good points from last game. I thought, apart from Van Persie's goal, Van Persie's goal was, was really nice. I mean, he had a really good turn, good drive towards the box, and then he kind of smashes it in from the from the edge of the box. But, I mean, even that wasn't really as good as, as Gomez's first goal. Gomez's was, was fantastic. I mean, it was just Germany were far better. They were just so much a better team that I was ready to give up by half-time. I was just so depressed. Especially the way, as, as, yeah, as you say, in the midfield, like Schweinsteiger had played such a key role in setting up both goals because he just had free reign of the midfield. The players just didn't really have any, they, could, they wouldn't close them down or anything. They were never really proactive. They were just reacting to everything and, and it was just easy for, for Germany to pull them apart and, and they just had to move around a bit, really, and that was, that was them in the clear. But the, the space that they gave him was just so criminal. And, and yeah, as you say, Robin was, was kept totally quiet. And that was really horrifying to see. Once that happens, uh, the Netherlands are just, were just done for. And I said, really, if, if they kept, anybody kept uh, Robin quiet, then, then it was going to be really difficult. Afterwards, a full-time whistle went. And, you know, I was like, yeah, OK, we lost, we're out. And then I just get that tiny crumb of hope which is that uh if if Germany beat Denmark 
and we beat Portugal by two goals, I think it was. We could go through in second. Yeah. And then and then I started all over again of the kind of hang on a minute, we can do that, you know. We've yeah. got a good squad. Uh, Ronaldo hasn't been firing for Portugal. Yeah, I had this. I had similar thoughts. I had. I, I still had that. It's mathematically possible. Uh, surely, surely they can't lose every game. But wow. Van Mal, I could clearly. I mean. He taking the advice of the of the fans of the press and he just went for broke effectively. You know, Van Van Bommel was out for Van der Vaart. Uh Huntelaar was up front. Van Persie played behind him, so Afalai was dropped. Um, and obviously, it was pretty much perfect start, wasn't it, with Van der Vaart's goal? Um, all that did was heighten my deluded belief that oh, we're actually going to go through and be fine. <laughs> Yeah, and that yeah, it was noticeably better. This obviously they still did look kind of shaky even when they were at their best. Um, yeah, Ronaldo had been pretty bad. I don't think he had scored so far in the tournament. Had uh, this game uh, was getting a lot of criticism after Van der Vaart gave them that lead. You could really uh, it was easy to go with it and be like, yeah, it's going to happen now. This is this is the time. But I just. I guess it wasn't to be, but I thought the I thought Van der Vaart really showed himself to be yeah he was what he was one of those things that they were missing. It was a big big difference that they they did do a bit to to close that gap in midfield and try and win it, especially against the midfield that they were up against. I mean Portugal weren't really going to be able to dominate as much as in that way that Germany did, and so they cut out those big open spaces for them and and had a wee bit more control of it. And it was a, a more thrilling game and you also had Van I mean Van Persie could have equalised as well after they went 2-1 down so yeah it was it was a bit more of a, an uplifting one but just a shame that the damage had already been done it was yeah it was definitely a better performance Van der Vaart I think he hit the post pretty soon after he gave us the lead as well um, yeah I think so yeah yeah and so, like, again I, you had like individual errors with Yetro Willems being at fault for the first goal from Ronaldo he gave the ball away really easily and again, and yeah, there's just these, like, there's just similar problems from the previous game is coming back to Hunt. Yeah, I think that was, yeah, the Germany one was just awful. I thought the performance. Denmark was again pretty bad, but could have easily gone the other way. And then I don't know, maybe this one, but obviously, yeah, uh, lost it two one thanks to I think Ronaldo got two in the end. Um, and then yeah, obviously knocked out. Um, and then then came the backlash. So, uh, yeah, obviously, it started with pretty swiftly after his exit, Bert van Marwijk resigned as manager. First of all, he, he'd obviously had a contract to 2016, I think. God, that's a weird thought now, him staying <laughs> until then. Um, yeah. Do you, do you think that was fair? Yeah, I, I, I didn't see there being any way out of it for him, I thought. Um, I mean, it, it was I couldn't make him the, the only enemy, but... The team selection was often just really terrible. They couldn't do anything to to turn games around. They, I mean, even in that, that game against Portugal, they did just look like a, a bad team. They just did look really poor. And that was the case just the whole way through the tournament. And with a squad that had what that had everything that they had, it was just the it was just an incredible fall. And it was I mean, if you look at how it's been and just the last couple of years for the Netherlands, I mean, there have been, um, before Koeman came along, obviously, there have been performances where you are just startled by how bad a team of the of those players could, could play. It's just, it's phenomenal that they could just plummet to such a depth. And that, that tournament, Euro 2012, was like a concentrated version of that because... They did look good in qualifying. They looked good in, in some of the friendlies that they they'd been playing leading up to it. They had a, a squad that just looked so talented, and then they just caught everybody by surprise in the worst possible way. But yeah, so I think yeah, uh, Van Marwijk has to has to face a lot for it, and I, I just didn't see any way for him to continue. I didn't think it would have been in the Netherlands' best interest to to keep him. It just didn't make any sense. When it happened, I saw it on the uh, on like the BBC kind of red button teletext thing, which is a, a throwback. Um, yeah. And I just remember the initial reaction was I, I was really happy, you know, because we'd been knocked out and I was 
quite angry and it, the manager's always the easy scapegoat when you have a squad that good and then like, I remember just thinking like he's also the guy that got us within well the toe of Ika Casillas away from a world cup you know yeah and, and you just think you know he, he did that well with that squad if anything the squad had got better uh we'd hit number one in the world rankings between 2010 and 2012 I think mm-hmm. had some you know we'd looked really good I mean yeah it's a loaded question but how did it just all go so wrong? What do you think were the key factors in such a quick demise of his of that of that team? Um, well, it's I don't know. It's it's incredible because it all just everything just fell apart in those three games. Like it was just such a quick decline. It was so fast. It was. It was Really hard to understand for a long time. We were after they were out after the Portugal game. There was like a long period of time where people were like, "What actually? How did that actually happen?" Um, yeah, again, I mean, we've gone through it. There's the the structure of the team, the shape of the team um, was was obviously a problem in the in the team selection. The the defence was terrible. Um, for the first game, they had Vlar and Heitinger. Uh, Vlar was shocking in that first game. Uh, Heitinger got sold incredibly easily for, for the goal. There was no protection for, for Yetro Willems. The two defensive midfielders offered them no protection whatsoever. And it just kind of went on like that throughout the, the, the tournament. And then in attack, you just had no real connection. You had Arjen Robin and Van Persie and Schneider playing kind of as individuals, really. Um, and it was just a complete mismatch. I mean, as a squad, they just seemed to fall apart mentally as well. They they seemed to hate each other really quickly. Uh, you could get the feeling that they were all blaming each other for all the problems that they <laughs> that they had, which is kind of typical Dutch team stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah. in a way, it was in a way it was like a bit typical. Um, he obviously had problems with people wanting Huntelaar to start. I mean, I was one of them. I adored Klaus Jan Huntelaar at the time, so I was demanding that he he get his he get his game, um, and he refused to really take those risks at times. Uh, Van Marwijk, uh, when it comes to fixing the midfield or playing with Van Persie and Huntelaar together. Yeah, as I mean, you know, Ruud van Nistelrooy is kind of my favorite. One of my, one of my favourites, yeah, I loved him growing up, um, and I, I I still to this day kind of love that kind of striker. And Hintelaar was very much seemed more the the heir apparent to Van Istroy than Van Persie did. So I I was well up for Hintelaar kind of playing. Yeah. Um, previous two tournaments, generally you consider them successful ones, different reasons. After both tournaments, 2008-2010, all the all the pundits were, were kind of praising Holland for seemingly moving on from um those issues of you know off the pitch dressing room problems kind of going at each other or hating each other um and then yeah Euro 2012 came and just came out of nowhere because the squad seemed so tight-knit from 2010 you know where they got to the final and then yeah, all those stories came out there was this you know this story of Van der Vaart and Hintelaar were causing problems because they weren't being picked. Um, yeah, Affalai and Van, Van Persie, Persie were like, yeah. really arrogant and acted like they were the big stars and wanted everybody to like love and respect them and bow down to them, basically. Um, yeah. Yeah, and they came out quickly. Like it was because the players themselves kind of started hinting about hinting towards it after the Portugal game went in the in the interviews after it. Um, they started to say stuff like play, some players need to look at themselves and we need to look in the mirror and and, and it was all like a, a character thing instead of something to do with actually how they were playing even though that was the big issue was just how bad they were but uh, it also they, they really quickly started to snitch on each other to their connections in the press uh, it was how it was how I seemed to get it um, yeah. because I remember Johan Derksen uh, at Football International he quickly came out with all sorts of, of stuff about Van Persie and Affili, um and a few others. And I think that came from one particular player that he was close to. Um, so, yeah, there was a lot of strange stories that started circulating around that. I remember one I heard was, um, I can't remember 
if they gave the name of the player that supposedly claimed it. But uh, apparently one of the big big names in the Dutch team claimed to a journalist that um, another player had like been leaking tactical plans to the opposition. Yeah. You look at it and you th- if you look at 2010, you know, in 2008 as well, that, that generation at least of Robin van Persie, Schneider, van der Vaart, Hintelaar, there were never any issues prior to 2012, were there really? Um, not really. I mean, I think van Persie had had problems with, I mean, he had already, well, not problems, but he had been seen as being an arrogant sort of um, figure, but not not one that was like the, so destructive for the entire team. Um, yeah, it was it was a really strange transition, and it's it's a strange one to to think of how tense must it have been inside the dressing room or the hotels and, and training sessions to make them play as basically a whole bunch of strangers, which is what they came across as sometimes in, in that tournament, I thought. Yeah, yeah, it's, it shows really that you need so much more than just a squad to be successful, because that, that 2012 one was probably, you could even argue it was the best best Dutch squad since, you know, the days of 98-2000 with Burkamp in that generation. Yeah. It was, it just had everything, form, ability, age, um, and that obviously turned out not to be enough. Um, so yeah, let's try and end this on a more positive note. Going into Euro 2021 now, they don't obviously have the squad of 2012, those kind of superstars who were some of the best in the world. But um, what, what are your expectations for this? Like I said, the squad's not that kind of golden generation, but everything else seems to be in better shape than what went wrong back then, right? Yeah, I'm I'm a lot more confident in the team for sure. Um, I mean, they're not going to go into a tournament with the same expectations that we had going into 2012. <laughs> no. it's, it's just not possible. But you you can see that they are starting to play like a good team again. I think Cuban's um, Cuban's tenure has been really bright so far. I think the year delay. It works in Netherlands' favour, actually, because it means we're going to have a good chance of having Memphis fit for it. Berghain should be fine. Uh, we're going to have some more time for Stings and Bordeaux uh, to, to develop and get used to the team. I mean, that is if games get played again in the next year. <laughs> this, this coronavirus mm. stuff could keep going on. They might not, they might not get to play for, for quite a while, but there are... The players that are there, I am, um, I, I like. I think they have a good and, and interesting and quite exciting squad. And the players coming through are are really um, exceptional. I mean, I love Calvin's things. I think he's magnificent. I love Myron Baudou. He's just a wonderful talent. Um, and it will be amazing to see them play with with Memphis Depay and Vinaldum and. Um, Bergwijn as well, obviously. Uh, Defence is still really shaky. It's kind of irritating that, that Koeman hasn't really been able to figure something out because it just even with the same as uh, 2012, the left-back position is a problem. I don't like it when they play Daily Blind. He <laughs> scares me. Nah. always has. Uh, I've never been comfortable with it. Um, and they, they don't. But the problem is that they don't really have a solid option. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I mean, at Euro 2012, Yetro was still only 18, but he there was a reason for him being there. He was a fantastic talent. I was convinced that he was going to be the best left-back in the world. I mean, I, I thought he was incredible, but he unfortunately had has just been plagued by injuries since then. So this is the time where he he could have been coming into his peak and, and taking on a really key role uh, there but unfortunately it's, it's not worked out um, obviously it's amazing to have Van Dijk there and, and growing but the left still has quite a, a few kind of shaky performances at times that worries me um, and then there's also at right back as well it's still a bit of a, a uncertainty over there I mean I don't know if they will have turned Quincy Promise into just a full full time <laughs> right wing back by that point or um, Denzel Dumfries might have some more uh, defensive solidity to him. I don't know, but um, there's still some issues at, at, at defence for them. 
I'm definitely not going to go into it thinking that they're going to win or that they're going to do, they're going to even reach the final or anything. But uh, I expect them to at least lose in style, um, which is probably more, which is at least acceptable for the Dutch. If you're going to lose, at least do it, <laughs> at least do it gracefully. I know, uh, I know full well that you know my my dad, my granddad, they they'd take losing in style than winning without style, really. You know. So, uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's the, that is like the big debate still here, I guess. I mean, I think I think it is changing now. I think there are more people who just want to win something. It's good to see that they are making progress and that there is something, some reason to hope and some reason to be confident about the future. Um, yeah. yeah. When you when Hedink took over, for example, you just, I mean, that whole time, uh, Van Gaal was seen as somebody to stabilise things a bit and just get them through the tournament with, with, without being humiliated again. It wasn't as if he was there to actually build something for the future and do something. And they kind of combined old school and new school by saying that, well, Hiddink will come in and he will then for some somehow stabilise things and get them ready for the future for the great hero Danny Blint to come in and, and take over <laughs> and, and deal with the transition between generations. And, just like, I mean, at the time you were thinking, what? That doesn't make any sense. This is not going to go well. And it went even so much worse than, than you could have imagined. So it is good that they have managed to shake all of that off and actually have, you know, a competent manager, Ronald Koeman, and have like a team that, that, that has potential, really, uh, even if it does have its problems. But as part of the fun with the Dutch, <laughs> you can yeah. have. Can yeah. look promising, but you still got the danger of pure uh, catastrophic collapse. Yeah, it's, it's better than you. England usually just go out with a whimper, you know. Yeah. So that's well, Scotland, do. don't, Scotland don't even go anywhere whatsoever. <laughs> been just home for the last twenty-two years, and uh, yeah, it's just been depressing. So I, at least I have some. At least I have something to look at to to look to with some hope. Yeah, I yeah I think um, the last uh, well six years supporting Holland have kind of destroyed any shred of naivety or optimism in me. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, I, I do think yeah, looking ahead to it, um, if you look at the squad, you know, there's a lot of young players that you mentioned. I'm a big fan of. I love Stings. Um, Coop Miners is one of my favourite as well. Yeah, he's cool. Um, yeah. Um, I think I long time been wanting Danny Blind to play in midfield alongside De Jong because I just don't think he, he's just too doesn't have the pace for left back. I don't think. Um, yeah, I would I would not put. Him I mean, even when he had the pace, we still were screaming. I mean, when he joined Man United, I was like, just don't play him at left back. Yeah. Play him <laughs> in the midfield where he's he was because he was amazing for Ajax uh, in those last couple uh, those last couple of years when he played it a defensive midfielder. Um, well, the last season anyway. Um, you just they just seem to be. I don't know. It's just it's incredible that anybody still thinks. Yeah, we'll just go with with Daily Blind. That just blows my mind. Yeah, I I'll never understand, especially when he looked so good in midfield as well. Even when he played there for United a bit, he was. Yeah. You know, he did that Dutch Perlo. He even had the hair for it. With yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. True. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a, obviously Koeman could go the way of Van Halen stick five at the back which could solve wing back issues you can put promise there but uh well it wouldn't I, be it wouldn't be crazy for him i mean it was his final team that kind of inspired van Gaal's yeah. Netherlands team to do that in the first place and i think it would be i i don't think he should just stick with with what he's been doing because it does leave them exposed i think he does need to do something to to cover for that because it's just it's one of those obvious glaring um, areas where you just don't want to leave that, you don't want to leave it up for grabs against a, a competent you know, counter-attacking or, or, or strong attacking team. Yeah, it just, it seems on paper at least to solve all the issues really, but I mean on paper Holland should have won Euro 2012. Yeah, so, exactly. You know, guess you can't go with that can you? Uh, well, while I've got you here, I'll, I'll ask you for a prediction for Euro 2021 as it is now. How, what what stage are Holland going to get to? Uh, I would say they'll get to the. 
I'll say semi-final. I'll go for that. I mean, well, that's that's a really big call, but uh, no, I'll say they can get to the semi-finals uh, with a bit of luck. Um, it feels weird saying that about a, a Dutch team, but I mean, you miss so many tournaments like that. They're going to want to come back with a bang. I think they do have the attacking potential to to stun anybody. And you've got to think, like, by that point, I mean, Ryan Babel just gets stronger and stronger. He's going to be in Ballon d'Or winning form. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think I think that would be a, a really good um, performance from them, considering just the horrors that they've been through. If, if, we were, if the tournament wasn't delayed, I wouldn't be saying that. If they were going into it now, I would be thinking... I would be pretty nervous and would be expecting either group stage going out, um, not with just all defeats, it would be kind of close, or just uh, quarterfinals. But yeah, I think they can go an extra round. What do you yeah. think? Yeah, I'm I'm same boat really. I'd say semis as well. I think um, if it was this year, then I think, I mean, things just kept going worse and worse for Cameron in terms of this year with injuries, form yeah. of players. Um, and yeah, so when it was first announced that it was delayed by a year, I was, I was gutted because I mean I'm graduating from uni this year. I had tickets for for some matches. I wanted oh. to you know, interrail it, uh, maybe cover some for the. So I, at first I was gutted, but then I thought from the perspective of a supporter rather than kind of you know a, a would be journalist, um, it's not bad news at all really. Yeah, like I mean, yeah. I think it's better for the players. He's got more time to figure out the issues, so. Yeah, I'd say semis. Um, I mean, I'm not going to go with the whole Euro 2012 philosophy of yeah, we can go and win it. Um, <laughs> I, maybe I, I we should maybe we should go in with the like conviction that they're going to lose all games and go out. Only ways up if we go that way, you know. But, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and I think as well the the competition isn't as as strong as it was. In preview, you know, like Euro 2012, for example, you had Spain, Germany, even Italy just look, were really good side drawers now. I think France and Belgium are very good. But apart from that, I don't think there's that many teams, I think, that yeah. we, we, we couldn't beat. Yeah, it has really changed a lot just in, in those eight years, the international landscape. That's quite quite incredible. Uh, I was, I mean, I don't know what you were like, but when I, I, I lost all hope when, when Memphis got his injury, as soon as that became clear that he was done for the season, I was like, oh, I, I was basically hoping that something would happen to, <laughs> to delay <laughs> you know, to, uh, uh, the Euros, because I was like, yes, it's, it's just awful. That, but that was the key one for me. And then even when I kind of shook myself and was like, okay, maybe they can still be all right. And Berlin, obviously, yeah. fell apart. <laughs> like, oh, God, this is the, how could this be? This is like something from a film. Where, yeah. Like just the start, the ones that you're focusing on are the ones who just collapse and they have to bring in a ringer. Why? Why were you so cynical about that? About it, if it had happened this summer? Uh, yeah, I think it was yeah similar to what you said. I think the injuries were bigger. You know, I think really, I I, I always think in my head if I could choose two players that the Dutch would not lose for Euro 2020, yeah. it probably would have been Depay. And De Jong, um, yeah. he, obviously the obvious one's Van Dijk, but I think we've got De Vrij and Ake. We're so well covered there. there. Yeah. Um, whereas, yeah, Depay and De Jong, they're two players you can't really replace. And then we had Depay got injured and De Jong hasn't had, hasn't had a great year with Barcelona, obviously. We had De Ligt as well, so is struggling at Juve. So, yeah, yeah I, I thought injury, combination of injuries and form, thought, yeah, quarterfinals would be a pretty good tournament whereas it's kind of yeah a year delay I I'm going to be going to be optimistic and say that in that year De Jong and De Ligt will find their feet at their clubs yeah. Um, yeah I think so yeah I mean you have you've got to have the confidence with both of them for different reasons I mean you remember obviously De Ligt had that horrible introduction to the uh, national team and the Dolgeria game was just awful 45 minutes uh, and he, he bounced back really quickly I mean it showed a lot of his like mental strength uh, I think to go from the Eredivisie to Serie A um, is a, just leaves you with so much to get used to as a centre back the, um, there's so much focus on the on the system uh, that you're playing in whereas in the Eredivisie defenders have a lot of time to 
sort of make up their own minds and, and develop themselves really when in games. And uh, he just doesn't really have that at Juventus. So I think it's just a case of adapting. And I think he has the the mental strength to to kind of get himself on track. Um, and I, I think a bad year isn't really a isn't the end of the world for somebody like that. And then with De Jong, you've got like the problem of I mean, at times he was the kind of playing out of position at, at Barcelona. Uh, again, he's got similar things of adapting to just a whole other level and a, a different pace, but. You see the style that he's got and the style of the team in him and, and just the quality of him. You kind of really imagine that he's he's going to crumble, considering what you've seen from him. But what do you think of Koeman? I mean, what, how do you, do you think he'll stick around for long? And, uh, um, no, I think he'll. I think we'll have him for for Euro twenty twenty one, and then I think he's probably going to head off to Barcelona. Yeah. Um, I think it's. I, I I think it's made a case pretty similar to you know when Frank Rijkaard took over for 2000. He, yeah. It was it was a personal ambition and dream to to lead his country a big tournament. But yeah, and I think what in the fact that that clause was in Koeman's contract as well that he can leave and Barca come calling afterwards. I think it all just points to him leaving after next year. Um, yeah. What about you? Do you reckon he'll stick around? No, I'm the same as you. I, I imagine that. There's been so much said about Barcelona, but I'm I'm, re- I'm not really sure that he should do it. I, I understand why he wants to go to Barca, but I don't I don't think it would be great option for either of them because I don't think he's really going to go there and improve them a great deal. Um, and I'm a wee bit cynical about how Barca are run at the moment. So, but the problem is that I, I mean I have no idea who would who would replace him. I, my favourite coaches at the moment are like. Eric Ten Hag, obviously, I think he had fantastic. Peter Bosch is just an absolute gangster. I love him to bits. And, um, well, obviously, John Vandenbrom is really cool as well. So there's only a few options. That wouldn't also wouldn't surprise me if they start looking for a foreign option uh, after Koeman. But it's, kind of, it's tough to pick out a natural successor, but I guess there's still some time to work it out. Yeah, I, I think... Um... Back in the dark ages when Danny Blind was was removed from the job, uh, and there was just no good option around. It was more a case of waiting for Kuman. So let's get Dick Advocat in in the meantime. Yeah, it was um, incredible. How few options there were, wasn't it? I, I remember. I think at one point Jurgen Klopp was the most popular choice. And when you've got a German <laughs> German manager, the most popular choice for the Dutch team, you know there's not many options. Yeah, yeah, and another one that I heard being talked about was uh, like even Roger Schmidt, who obviously yeah, yeah. take over PSV, but he had <laughs> been at uh, Salzburg and didn't really do well at Leverkusen. But I could, it seemed like an outlandish choice. But it's it was that's another one that was a really you're like, whoa, this is this is a bit bizarre. But yeah, well, to be fair, I mean Klopp, to be fair, would have been. Phenomenal! That would have been dynamite. I would have loved that. But even if they were, even if they were still terrible, at least it would have been <laughs> fun. I, I do think Cuban will leave, and yeah, I don't think the option. It, it's the situation is not as bleak this time. You know, we can do better than Dick Advocate, but uh, I'd probably. I, I love Peter Boss as well, um, yes. and I think he's probably probably the most likely option I'd go as far as saying because I think Ten Hag's going to want to stick around in club football. Yeah, for a wee bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So probably, I probably would say, and I, I do really like him. He's done well at Leverkusen. Um, yeah. His reputation took a hit because of that awful Ajax Europa League final performance, I think. But um, really, I think, yeah. I, I, unless unless they go the way of you know how they went when they appointed uh, Van Basten back in two thousand and four, and he didn't really have any experience, but he's a big name, so it was okay. Um, Imagine Arjen Robin became the Netherlands coach. That would be, <laughs> yeah, be fun. I'd have zero issues with it. I don't care if he doesn't even have his coaching <laughs> badges by then. <laughs> Hell yeah! No, I would. I would definitely be up for that. Let's just <laughs> let's just stick around for it. But with with Boris, I think there's a good chance that by the time uh, Koeman does leave, I mean there's a good chance that Leverkusen will be kind of fed up with him and ready, <laughs> or he'll be fed up with Leverkusen and ready to go. Uh, so it might, the timing of it might might work out well, but yeah, I, I do. I, I think you're right about um, Ten Hag probably wanting to stick around. And Boss has obviously been around a lot of clubs already, so maybe he will want to 
take the national team and, and get them playing according to his style, which would be so much fun because, I mean, we're both, like, the defence is strictly uh, a figment of your imagination. He does, not give, he does not have anything to do with it. Like, I don't care. They can do what they want. So you can imagine, like, Van Dyke and Delift would actually be fine with that. They can just roam around and, and own stuff and just let everybody else bomb forward and and just be it would be just pure suicidal football and I would be well up for it because uh, that's yeah, what I like it, to see. It, it's <laughs> been too it, it's been too long since Holland have played that way, you know. I think uh, oh, Kuman's yeah. he has changed it a bit, but uh, in a lot of matches he's still very pragmatic with his approach, you know. So yeah, yeah. I think having, having a guy like Peter Boss would be. Oh, yeah, it'd be so much fun. <laughs> he, I mean, well, he is like a kind of typically Dutch coach. He does sort of play more according to that that, that famous total football style than than anybody has for for years, really. Um, I mean, all of his teams have done it. So it would be, and what in one way it would be going back to the part the past, but also the future as well, because I mean that that style of football is still obviously popular it's just been twisted a bit and the the Dutch have kind of left it behind themselves but uh, yeah he would be he's probably my first choice and Van den Brom would be fine as well because um, I do I, he's a wee bit underappreciated I think yeah I'm going to excited thinking about a Peter Bass Holland team now oh uh, yeah let's start the start the petition now <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's, yeah let's set it up <laughs> yeah well uh thanks very much for uh for coming on and chatting there uh, about well the, the the good and the bad of uh, you know of, of loving the Dutch team. <laughs> yeah, a lot more bad than good. No, this is this is a lot of fun, man. Um, was, thanks for having me. It was good fun coming on and reminiscing about the painful years. So that was the story of Euro 2012 told by myself and Peter McVitie. Um, thanks very much for listening. Um, especially if you made it to the end, and especially if you're a Holland fan, reliving your team losing three matches and generally having a horrendous tournament can't be the easiest thing so uh yeah fair play if you enjoyed the episode then uh make sure to subscribe to the podcast on uh, soundcloud spotify or itunes and yeah keep your eyes peeled for the next one in the meantime you can check out our website clockworkaranya.com follow us on twitter at clockworkaranya and find our facebook page clockworkaranya yeah that's just about everything for today so Thanks again and see you soon. Bye.